invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's page 962 in these Bibles in the pews. And I'll say some words I, you and I were wondering if I'd ever say, and that is we come to our last series sermon on the series on 1 Corinthians after uh, quite a while. Before I read that, I uh, want to remind most of you, and that most of you are aware of this if you're a church member, that uh, we had a tragedy yesterday in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that's affected several families in our church. Kent and Susan Boston were longtime members here. They kind of trade their time between Chattanooga and here because of his work. They have four uh, grown children, and uh, their son, uh, Peter, his wife, Mallory, who is the niece of Brent Piles, Brent and Nancy Piles here, she was uh, killed in a uh, crash yesterday morning. She was with her three-year-old and at the base of Lookout Mountain, had, they'd been hiking a trail and came out and a, some kind of chemo, large 18-wheeler chemical truck had lost control, lost its brakes or something coming down Lookout Mountain and it hit her car and ran her head on into another car. And So she died at the scene and the three-year-old miraculously uh, is like nothing happened. No scratches or anything, but they're all interwoven because Ken and Terry Harper here in our church, uh, one of their children is, is married to one of the Boston's children, and and Ashley and Ellen Royal have, um, they're kind of tied in since they have a son married to the Powell's daughter, and they're all in Chattanooga. Thankfully, they're all, most of them are in a North Shore Presbyterian church, and a pastor that's known their family for many, many years, Robbie Holt, and is ministering to them. But I talked to Kent yesterday, the father, would have been the father-in-law of, the, of Mallory that was killed, and we talked on the phone and, and traded texts with Peter, the husband. Um, and so I know many of you, most now a message went out yesterday, most of you probably know that, that knew them, but I hope you'll continue to pray for them. In fact, I want to pray for them right now before we read the scripture. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, for those of us that know... Uh, a portion of this family uh, maybe knew directly Mallory and her husband Peter. We pray for your mercies, especially today as the reality of this uh, tragedy uh, begins to weigh full force on them. We pray you'd uh, minister to their needs through that congregation where they are involved. We pray that you'd bless all the parents, all the intersections, even here in our church with your comfort and your peace and especially your care for these uh, three children of Peter and Mallory, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come uh, to the last section of uh, 1 Corinthians, and honestly, by comparison to what I just told you, it may seem rather trivial, but it really isn't, and I, I think there are some applications here, but if we come to the end of the, uh, the book, and uh, for those that hadn't been here, the Apostle Paul had planted the church in Corinth, and then he stayed there for a while, got it established, then he now has moved on and he's far away in the city of Ephesus and he's writing back to them this first letter. We think there were four letters to the Corinthians. We only have two today that survived. And he is giving his travel plans. We've, we've moved some, from some lofty subjects as we've gone through the, the letter uh, about worship, about marriage and singleness, about um, uh, idolatry about worship in the church, uh, about the Lord's Supper. We've looked at lots of things like that, and spiritual gifts, and now we come to what would seem to be some mundane personal comments at the end of the letter. But 
I think they are revealing. So uh, let me just read through the entire chapter. We dealt with the first four verses last week, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through the end of the chapter after. Hear God's word. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I come, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. So that, you, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus, and a, I, I cannot pronounce, I'm sorry, a teacher came up afterwards and tried to help me, but I can't. You can read it. It starts with the A. Because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So ends the reading of God's Word. This past week's tragedy in Broward County has brought again conversations, national conversations about gun control, but even more so about mental health care in the U.S. Some time ago, I read about a study conducted by the California Department of Mental Health. It's very fascinating. The study concluded that if you are disconnected from other people, in other words, if you have no one in your life who you would count as a close friend or close family member, if you are disconnected from other people, and if there's no one in your life you feel who understands you, you are two to three times more likely to die an early death. If you are disconnected from others, you are four times more likely to, social, to suffer emotional burnout. You are five times more likely to suffer from clinical depression. 
and you are 10 times more likely to be hospitalized for an emotional or mental disorder. Human connections are good medicine. We need them. We need them for our physical well-being, our emotional well-being, our spiritual well-being. You need people who understand you, and you need to understand others. People to whom you can relate and to whom you can connect. In the church, we, we use the term today community. This was, has become a much more popular term in the past 10 years or so. Today, when I speak to newcomers to Macon who visit our church, they often will say, I'm really looking for community. They mean fellow, what we would call fellowship, close relationships with other people, supportive Christian fellowship. I believe that's what is reflected here in this last part of the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. It's a cameo of life in the new community. And last week, if you were here, we looked at the opening verses. Life in the new community involves generosity. And now life in the new community involves friendships. And those friendships in this new community of believers is not based on race or economic background or educational level or nationality, not even on language. It's a commonality we have of being brothers and sisters in Christ. When I was in high school, there was a worker with a Christian ministry in my hometown. His name was John Bruce. And John, I think, was gifted in evangelism. He was very adept at being able to explain to someone the gospel and, and lead that person to Christ. John had this little thing he would like to do. After he, say, would talk to a student, if that student professed their faith in Christ, he would say to them, now, if God's your father and God's my father, what does that make us? And the person would say, brothers? And he said, that's right. Put her there, brother. And he'd shake their hands. I've always remembered that. Put her there, brother. Now we're part of the new community. We're part of God's forever family. What I want to do is unusual for me, and uh, you're thinking, what, be interesting? No, I'm talking about, I'm going to read the passage, uh, parts of it, make observations, kind of a running commentary on some of the text, and then I want to do a topical explanation of friendships from the book of Proverbs. So it's two sermons in one, don't worry, in one time frame, Okay. Now, let's just look at the text. Since we just read it, I won't read it all. But in verses 5 and 6, Paul tells of his future plans and how he wants to come to Corinth. I told you he, he writes this from the city of Ephesus. And he prefers to come, he says, for a long visit. He doesn't want to just make this a quick high and by kind of thing. He wants to spend some time there. Perhaps his motivation was to help with some of the problems he had addressed in answer to their questions, but he also wanted to be with them. And in verse 6, he says that he wants them to help him. Friends are not afraid to ask for help. I think it's a compliment if someone asks me, say, Chip, I really need some help doing this, and I don't have anybody else I can ask. The fact that they will feel the freedom to ask ought to be a compliment to us. Say, well, the person at least trusts me and feels comfortable to ask. I had a friend describe his relationship with another fellow once, saying, I told him, if, if you're anywhere and you need anything, you call me and I'll start driving. I won't even ask why. 
And if I don't, if I don't have a car, I'll start walking. I think he meant it. That's friendship. Verse 7, he doesn't want a brief visit. Verse 8, he talks about ministry and how he needs to remain. I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because he had a wide open opportunity for ministry. They understood this. And then in verses 10 and 11, he mentions Timothy. For those who don't remember, Timothy had, had been, a, you might say, a disciple of the Apostle Paul. He, he had been his student. Paul had trained him. He had seen gifts in Timothy and complimented his background and how he had been trained in the scriptures. And Paul took Timothy with him and he trained him and he ultimately became the pastor in Ephesus, in that city. But we see from Paul's writing to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, that, that Timothy probably was shy. He was somewhat timid. And one of the reasons was because of his youthfulness. He was younger and he was probably trying to minister to people who were older than he was. And, and that was probably more in Timothy's mind than in others. But Paul writes and tells them, make sure that you put him at ease. Uh, uh, the New American Standard says that let him stay with you without fear. Um, maybe he felt intimidated following on the heels of preachers like Apollos. As Paul has referred to Apollos early in the letter. Apollos, we know from the New Testament, was a very gifted speaker and defender of the faith. For those who know the, who Ravi Zacharias is today, a, a well-known, internationally known defender of the Christian faith, very fluent speaker, very bright, Apollos probably was on that level, if not higher. And they had requested Apollos, and maybe Timothy felt under his shadow or something and not as, as brave. In uh, verse 12 said, Apollos, had been, though they had requested that he come, he said no. He declined their request. Paul doesn't say why, but we can assume it was a disappointment to them. Do you, do you know who Alistair Begg is? Y'all ever listen to Alistair Begg on the radio? He, he's from uh, Scotland. He was trained at um, uh, that Bible, the London Bible College and a great preacher and has, has been in the, you married a, a gal from the United States and has, has been a pastor either in Cleveland or Cincinnati. I can't, I can't remember. One of those two, he's, he's been there for many years. But he's on the radio, and I've heard him at various conferences. Well, one of our assistant pastors several years ago told me, said, hey, we've got this biblical institute next year. Alistair Begg has agreed to come and preach. Well, I was kind of taken back. I thought, Alistair Begg's coming here? He said, yeah, I wrote. I wrote, and he, he said, yeah, he'd come. So a few months later, Barbara and I were at a pastor's conference at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham at Samford University. And Alistair Begg was one of the many speakers. So after one of the messages, we walked up out of this crowd of several hundred, and we met him and said, we're so grateful you're coming to our church. He said, now which church is that? I said, First Presbyterian in Macon, Georgia. He said, yes, I know. I know your pastor, Ligon. And I said, no, that's Ligon Duncan. He's the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. I said, I'm the pastor in Macon. He went, oh. Barbara and I, when we walked away, I said, we're toast. <laughs> Within two weeks, we had a letter saying he would no longer be able to accept our invitation to come to Macon. I'm not saying that to criticize Alistair Begg. I thought something's wrong here. How does he know, you know, he normally speaks to these mega crowds and so forth. Well, maybe Apollos was like that. Maybe he was the speaker, preacher, evangelist, apologist who was in great demand and not Timothy. 
Now in verses 13 and 14, we have five admonitions. And he's summarizing what he's written in previous chapters. Be watchful, that is be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. In other words, don't be immature. Don't be childish. And be strong. Be strong in their faith. Stand against the paganism that was infiltrated all through their culture. And then he says, let all that you do be done in love. A reminder of all that he had explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about love. And then in verses 15 to 18, he mentions the household of Stephanus. And he commends this family. He commends them because of how service-oriented they were. And apparently it just wasn't one member, it was the entire family was thinking in terms that service was an important Christian quality. We speak today of sometimes people either being givers or takers. And I know none of us can be categorized into one picture all the time, but, but some people are. They seem to be they're just always taking, always taking and never giving. Well, this family was just the opposite. They were givers. They served others. And this, in verses 19 to 20, he gives greetings from the churches in Asia. And there was, even though they were apart and did not know each other, there's true fellowship. They wanted to know, tell us about the church in Corinth. Tell us what's happening there. Years ago, I sat with, with four other pastors and with some of our missionaries that we had supported for years. And we were in Odessa in the Ukraine. And they had just moved there. Within two years, they had served in another country, I believe in Spain, before they went to the Ukraine. And they'd had a long-standing relationship with this church. And we went to eat lunch. And though my mind was filled with questions about that city and their ministry there, all they wanted to talk about was tell us about the Clarks. Tell us about this family. Tell us about these people. How are they doing? How are they doing? And I remember I would say, oh, they're, they're doing great. Well, that, per oh, that person passed away a year ago. And the wife, this missionary wife, just tears came down her face. I could tell the love and connection and appreciation they had for people here. That's what it was like, Paul saying, the church in Asia, they send their greetings to you. There's this unity of being in the, the new community together. Then in verses 21 to 24, he expresses his love for them. Uh, I didn't grow up in a background, in a family, where you said, I love you. That, I rarely heard it. I never said it that I remember. It just was awkward. But I find myself more and more, as I get older, saying it to people, to you. And I think the reason is, I don't know how many more times I'll have time, an opportunity to say it. I said it to Kent Boschen on the phone yesterday. I said, Kent, I love you. And he said, I love you too, Chip, And uh, after we talked about that terrible tragedy. Okay, now, I'm shift shifting gears. You can look up because I'm going to give you some verses from Proverbs, and most likely you're not going to have time to turn to them. So I just I, I want you to hear about some principles from true, of true friendship from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has a lot to say about friendship. Now, let me summarize what it says, and I'm not quoting a verse, but if you take all the verses on friends, they kind of boil down to one main principle, and that is a few close friends are much better than a lot of acquaintances. 
from all different directions in the book of Proverbs, which is right after the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, as it talks about friendship, it always talks about the value of a close friend and how much better that is than just to be, have a life filled with acquaintances. Do you have a close friend? As you sit here right now, can you think of a name or two or three that you would say, that's a close friend. I can talk to that person pretty much about anything. We all need such friends. We should be such friends. But the reality is it rarely happens. Sometimes we offer friendship to another person, and for one reason or another, they kind of reject it. Other times, we reject the initiatives that a person may extend toward us, wanting to be closer in our lives, and we say, I'm not going to allow that. Jerry and Mary White, sometime back, wrote a book I have called Friends and Friendship. And they state at the beginning of the book, we desperately need and want deep relationships. But all too often we find it difficult to develop that ideal friendship. We all experience brief ta taste of deepening friendship and know more is possible, yet the process of actually developing and deepening those friendships is frustrated by lack of time or mutual interest. When they do develop, we puzzle over how to maintain them and how to overcome the discord which inevitably occurs in regular interaction. I think the scriptures teach us that by the fact God created us in his image, that means we are hardwired. Our default setting is we need relationships. You say, well, where do you get that in the Bible? I get it from the nature of God himself, that God is relational. Let us create man in our image. The triune God, three persons in one being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God in his essence is relational. What is a friend? It's somewhat difficult to define. It's kind of like defining beauty. It's somewhat in the eye of the beholder. But in that book by Jerry and Mary White, they did an extensive survey of some 300 people. Some were married, some were single, some were men, some were women. They ranged in age from 18 years old to 82 years old. And one of the questions was, what's your definition of a friend? Here are some of the replies. A woman in her 60s said, one who knows you well and loves you anyway. One young man, 26, said, a friend is a person who's loyal in hard times, fun to be with, and with whom I have common interest. A man who is 52 said, a friend is a person who understands you, appreciates your views, and is loyal. A woman, 29, said, Age 29 said, one who I can share my heart with no matter what is on it and still be accepted for who I am, and vice versa. One who I can be honest with for good or bad. One who is a good listener. Well, here's a formal definition. A friend is a trusted confidant to whom I am mutually drawn as a companion and an ally, whose love for me is not dependent on my performance and whose influence draws me closer to God. Now, when you study anything on friendships, any kind of book, college textbook, anything, you'll, the same categories are typically used, and that is to describe the levels of friendship. I wish I had some other categories, but these will have to do. First is acquaintance. 
We make large numbers of acquaintances just through moving through life. Maybe as our neighbors, those with whom we work, in a church. And the reality is we don't intend to pursue those people to become close friends. Perhaps in your lifetime you may have hundreds. And some people may even have thousands of acquaintances. Second level is casual friends. So out of the pool of acquaintances become casual friends. These are people with whom we know their name. They know your name. You may have hundreds of casual friends. They're important, these friendships, but they do not satisfy that personal longing for close and meaningful connection with another person. In fact, you can be surrounded by casual friends and still feel very lonely. Out of that group of casual friends come those we would refer to as close friends. We may work together on common goals and activities. Often these goals bring us together and we find ourselves moving in the same direction through life. We see these people, we talk with them frequently, and we tend to remain somewhat close for many years, regardless of age or distance. But then there are best friends, intimate friends. From the pool of acquaintances to casual, to what we call close friends, arise just a few best friends, the people to whom we pour out our souls, we mutually share our deepest feelings and hopes, and we enjoy being with these people and we look forward to it. It's the kind of person like, I'm going to get to see Joe today. I'm going to get to see him. We're going to catch up. We haven't gotten to talk in a few weeks. Those who tend to study these things that say these type of friendships, those that reach that level, that for most of us, we will have no more than five of those in a lifetime. Now, if if in your mind you can think of more than five, you are a very blessed person. But the reality is that many of us cannot think of one person that would reach that level. I am grateful I can think of four. But they were all people I've grown up with. We're all in ministry, so you've got common interest. We have a whole catalog of memories from elementary school to junior high school to high school. And there's a commonality that so when you get together, you've got years of of foundation built that we don't even have to talk about. Why do we need friendships? This directly from Proverbs. As I said, Proverbs is emphatic that a few close friends is better than just a whole multitude of acquaintances. First, these are not in order of importance, but I took them from various Proverbs, is just emotional encouragement. We need friends for emotional encouragement. When Proverbs 27.9 says, Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. What that says is if you have a close friend and they give you counsel, they give you advice, uh, it brings joy to you to know that person cares for me and that person is right. That is insightful. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is in prison. He doesn't know whether he'll be executed or not. And he writes to Timothy 
And he says, make every effort to come to me soon. You say, why did he need something? Did he need him to bring him something? No, he wanted Timothy's presence. The next verse says, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. So Paul did not hide needing friendships. And if you think about Jesus, there on the night, after the time in the upper room with the disciples, on the night he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's arrested in the early morning hours, which begins the whole episodes with the crucifixion. What does he do when he goes to the garden? He takes Peter, James, and John, the three disciples with whom he was the closest, and he asks them to go with him. He leaves them and tells them to keep watch. What do they do? They go to sleep. He is pleading with God, let this cup pass from me. He's pouring out his heart. The Bible tells us he's in agony. He comes back more than once and says, couldn't you stay awake even just for a little while? And then when the soldiers come, Peter responds with cutting off the high priest's servant's ear. Then what do they do? They run. If Jesus needed close friends, and if Paul needed close friends, why might we think, well, I can, I'm an island. I'm strong enough on my own. I've got enough spiritual resources. I need nobody. Not so. We're fooling ourselves if we think that. Secondly, a friend can be help in trouble. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So true friendship really comes through when we are down and in trouble. And a friend stands by and helps, sometimes even at great personal expense of time and resources for that friend. Are you that type of person in another one's life? Third, we need friends for personal stability. Family and friends form the foundation of a stable life. They keep us from making hasty, foolish decisions that we will later regret. They keep us from being so self-absorbed that we just get consumed with our own lives. They add a proper focus to our goals. Proverbs 18.1 has stuck with me for years. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. You know what that says? The person who withdraws from everyone else, who isolates himself or herself from other people, is really only about their own desire. And they will argue against sound wisdom. The isolation they crave often does not help them at all, and it re, but it removes wise counsel from their life. Fourth, we need friends for spiritual help and counsel. Most of you know the verse from Proverbs 27, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The picture there is that God uses us and to, to confront one another or to encourage one another, and when that happens, sometimes there are sparks that fly. Uh, perhaps you in your friendship with another person have said, hey, I need to point something out to you I think you're a little blind to in this situation, but if you thought about this, maybe a few sparks flew off at that point or someone said to you, I know you intended this, but do you realize how you just sounded to those people that you spoke to or to that individual? And when it's over, it's painful, but we say, thank you, Lord, that old Bill here cared enough about me to point that out. Spiritual help 
and counsel, also protection from isolation and loneliness. The, re- the reality is without friends, we tend to turn inward. And this is especially true of people as they grow older. Uh, we lived, when we first moved to Macon, we lived on a street, and there were probably 20 houses on that street. And because of the price of the houses and so forth, the demographics, I think we were the only family on the street, meaning father, mother, children. Lots of widows, widowers, divorcees, so forth. So we got to know most of the people over the several years we lived there. And and with some that are still living, we still have relationships with them. We're grateful for that. There was a widow who lived down from our house and uh, by herself, and she, she had she was very isolated from others. And my wife, being the shy, introverted person that she is, had really gotten to, to know her son and talk to her. Well, I don't know exactly how this happened. You'll have to explain to me later, Barbara, but at, at Halloween, I know a lot of y'all are going to think this is terrible and you can't believe preachers saying this. We actually took our kids to trick-or-treat. Okay, I know. I lost half of you right now. Uh, deal with it. I've been through all these arguments in seminary and everything else, and I had one professor who really condemned us if we would take kids trick-or-treating, and yet they taught their kids about Santa Claus, and he would defend that position with writings from C.S. Lewis. Go figure. I don't know. But on this particular night, I think the church at that time would have a fall festival down here, and we came down here and then maybe went to a different neighborhood and rang doorbells and asked for candy. We weren't worth spending the devil. And... We, we didn't go over to this person's house. Well, a day or two later, she let us know that she basically had waited a certain amount of time and had this candy for us to bring our kids over to her house. And she was not happy. She was very angry and let it be known, you know, how we had done her wrong. We were disappointed and surprised, and thankfully that relationship didn't end at that point. But if you just isolate yourself, and sometimes that kind of behavior is what causes the isolation, right? If you react toward toward people, that's not good. Uh, It's not good. If you see a friend that's going off down a path that's not good, it's not healthy, it's destructive for everybody involved, sometimes as a friend the best thing to do is call and just say, hey, let's get together. Tell me what's going on. How long have you been hurting? You do not want him or her to isolate themselves which often is the tendency, especially among church people. All right, last of all, <coughs> for growth in Christ. I'm three minutes over time. We'll be through in just a couple minutes. I see some of y'all looking at your... Nobody looks at watches anymore. You're pulling your phones out. Just don't make any calls, please, while I'm doing this. Jesus invites you to be his friend. Now you say, oh, that sounds trite the king of kings, the lord of lords, and you're using the term friend. I'm using that term because he used it. That we are all broken people. The religious, the the most vicious enemies of Jesus were the religious leaders of his day. And he, in describing their condemnation, said, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they were condemning him because he was a friend of the social outcasts, at least outcasts from the religious people. Yet Jesus loved them. 
In Luke 12, he said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. So he becomes the sin bearer. Jesus does. The greatest demonstration of love and friendship. For what does it say in John 15? Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You know the verse. That was Jesus saying that. That's not some poet that writes for American greeting cards or something. That was Christ saying that. And he invites us to put our faith in him. And he will never let us down. Last of all, 131 years ago, there was a young girl. Well, she wasn't a young girl, a young woman. 21 years old, named Ann Sullivan. Ann Sullivan had been born in the Northeast. It was not a good family situation. She had some kind of disease that led pretty much to where she was totally blind. She had a brother that had some physical disabilities. They were put into some kind of home at a young age. It was not, they were very abusive. This, the brother died within three months of going in this home. And Sullivan uh, got out, was able to get into a school where she began to learn to, 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 to read even though she was pretty much blind, and the hand alphabet. She's recruited to come to the little town of Tuscumbia, Alabama, up in northwest Alabama, to be the tutor for seven-year-old Helen Keller. Helen Keller at that time could only make animal-like sounds and often would fall into destructive rages. So for weeks when Ann Sullivan came, she tried to break through to Helen Keller's consciousness, and it happened on the 5th of April, 1887. April 5, 1887, a day described 60 years later by Helen Keller, and she says that she was holding a mug, a cup, under a water spigot that had a pump to make the water come out, and Ann Sullivan was pumping that, and water was going into the mug, and at the same time she was pumping it, she was taking the other hand in Helen Keller's other hand, and she was spelling out W-A-T-E-R, W-A-T-E-R, W-A-T-E-R. And according to Helen Keller's account, it, she suddenly understood what was happening. Seven years old. And she, she later wrote, spark after spark of meaning flew from hand to hand, and miraculously affection was born. Now, here's what you may not know. Within six months of that, she had taught Helen Keller 575 words. Um, she also had taught her several multiplication tables, and she had taught her the Braille alphabet. By age 10, three years later, by age 10, Helen Keller was writing or dictating letters to famous people in Europe in French, age 10. She mastered five languages, and by the end, she displayed far greater gifts than Ann Sullivan, who was her teacher. Ann Sullivan gave pretty much her entire career to being a tutor to Helen Keller. It was a 49-year relationship. Ann Sullivan evolved from teacher to governess and finally to companion and close friend. 
And in many ways, that friendship, that friendship between Ann Sullivan and Helen Keller changed. It changed the world's view of educating the disabled and especially of educating the blind. Let's pray together. Uh, Michael, I'm going to cut the last song, okay? Sorry, musicians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact you've made us to need friends and relationships. We pray that even starting today that we might mend relationships that we've let go by the wayside because of our neglect. We pray that you might um, give us the willingness to be friends, even close friends with other people, maybe people we haven't even met yet, and allow people into our lives to minister to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.